0: You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Che. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Let's read in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 through 13. So if you remember here, uh, Jeremiah is going to be prophesying up until the exile. Jeremiah prophesied he was actually left behind even after that third exile. And that's when he wrote Lamentations. But in verse uh, 10, he's prophesying. He's telling them what's going to happen. He's forth telling what will happen. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years to be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. And causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. That sh- uh, then shall ye call upon me. And ye shall go and pray unto me. And I will hearken unto you. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to pray? Jerusalem and the temple. Then shall ye go and pray unto me. And I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me. When... Ye shall search for me with all your heart. Ezra chapter one. Ezra chapter one. Have you ever had somebody ever asked you to look for something and you kind of looked, but you didn't look? You didn't really look. If you really want to find something, you gotta look with all your heart. You have to look with intent. Look with the desire to find something. It's the same thing with the Lord. Ezra chapter 1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of who? Jeremiah, the words that we just read might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this book of Ezra and see the true purpose and meaning behind it. And we ask this in your name. Amen. When was it written? I've got no clue. (laughs) I really don't. I will tell you this. It was written after the time period that it was writing about. So after the, t- the time period that it was writing about is about 536 B.C. to about 432 B.C. I guarantee you it was written after 432 B.C. You're welcome. Uh, the author in all likelihood is Ezra. All likelihood is Ezra. And you say, well, no doubt, it bears his name, but just wait, just wait. Uh, probably Ezra. Who's the audience? We can't just say the nation of Israel. It's the remnant returning from Babylon, And again, if you're going to understand the context, if you're going to understand the why behind the what is written, you have to understand who it's written to. And this is being written to the remnant that is returning from Babylon. It contains two main parts. You have chapter 1 through 6 and chapter 7 through 10. Chapter 1 through 6 is the return under Zerubbabel. And chapter 7 through 10 is the return under Ezra. So 1 through 6 return under Zerubbabel. 7 through 10, the return under Ezra. So, just as the exile to Babylon didn't all take place at once, the return from Babylon didn't all take place at once. The exile to Babylon took place in three different events. First, you had an exile of kind of the cream of the crop of society, and that happened under the king Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar came and kind of made J- Jerusalem a province, made Judah a province of Babylon, and took away kind of the best of the people, uh, one of those being Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That didn't work. The Israelites didn't bow down to Babylonian control, even though Jeremiah was telling them it's going to be a lot easier if you just take your punishment and wait the 70 years and you know just do what Babylon says, but they wouldn't do it. So then another exile takes place. Another deportation takes place. And that's under Jehoiakim. So the first one under Jehoiakim and then Jehoiakim. And during the second exile, okay, we've already taken kind of the leaders. Now we're going to take the workers. One of those being Ezekiel. That still didn't work. The, um, The people are going to... Uh, Egypt and looking for help to try to overcome Babylon and all this mess and it, and it leads to the third deportation where Nebuchadnezzar comes and he wipes everything out. He takes pretty much everybody to Babylon with him. He only leaves the poorest so of the poor, the sickest of the sick. He burns everything down. It's rubble. It's, it's utterly destroyed. The temple is stripped completely down to down past the foundation. So Just like the exile takes place in three steps, three events, the return takes place in three events. The first return is under Zerubbabel, the second is under Ezra, the third is under Nehemiah. So Ezra is going to cover the first two returns from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's also going to talk about the rebuilding of the temple, and it's going to talk about the problems that they faced along the way. In those ten chapters. And now right off the bat, there are some very interesting facts about Ezra that we need to take note of. First of all, it is one of the two books in the Bible that contains Hebrew and Aramaic. Aramaic is the language of the common people. Uh, It's the language that kind of everybody spoke at that time. Just like in a little bit, Greek is going to be the language that everybody speaks. But for now, Aramaic is what everybody speaks. So when they're being taken from their Hebrew land into Babylon, they're going to have to learn the language. And the language was Aramaic. So Ezra, as he's writing and as he's relating some of these records, Aramaic crosses over. So think of what other book would make sense if it was written during Babylon or around Babylon? Daniel. Daniel contains Aramaic as well. Okay, Uh, Here's another thing. Ezra, our main character, right? The one that that the book is named after. He doesn't show up until chapter 7. You ever noticed that before? Ezra doesn't show up until chapter 7. That's kind of interesting. And then the first three verses of the book of Ezra are nearly identical to the last two verses of 2 Chronicles. So, remember how the the book of Chronicles is telling us all about the temple, um, but it was the last two verses of Chronicles that really showed us the need for the author, for the writer, to tell them about their roots, their royalty, and especially their relationship. You are going to go back to build, not a throne, but a temple. So because Ezra begins, the book of Ezra begins where 2 Chronicles ends, it would make sense to think that the purpose of the book of Ezra is going to be carried into the book of Ezra. Uh, did I say that right? At the end of Chronicles is carried into the book of Ezra? And, and you'd be right, okay? So the, the book of Chronicles is telling you need to go back and build the temple while the first six chapters of Ezra are all about rebuilding the temple. Uh, so the purpose of them rebuilding, and, and it's not just the temple, right? It's not just the building. It's their relationship. It's where they seek God. It's where they see God's presence. It's where they're able to make atonement for sin. That is the temple. It's not just a building. It's, it's deeper than that. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the greatest pictures of the covenant promise that God gave to them, and they need to rebuild it. So the book of Ezra is not only continuing the storyline, it's continuing the lesson from chronicles about the importance of the temple and their relationship with God. So the first 6 uh, chapters again all about rebuilding the temple. So chapter 1 starts out with Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he gives a decree. The Lord God of heaven has charged me to build him a house. So anybody, anybody from his land, it, you are free to go back and you can start rebuilding the temple. And he even says, if any Jews would like to go back, but you don't have the money or you don't have the transportation, I order the people around you, give them the money. And give them the animals. Give them the means to go back. And immediately the decree is is followed out. I mean, a bunch of people start standing up and saying, I want to go back, I want to go back, I want to go back. And people from around start giving them gold and silver and The Bible says precious things and animals to to make this trek back. In chapter 2, it gives us the names and the numbers of all these people who are going to come back. And it starts with the leadership, and it kind of works all the way down. So the two leaders that you have, you have Zerubbabel, and he's the political leader. He's the one that Cyrus knows is of the royal line, and he actually makes him governor. But I love the fact that a descendant of the royal line of David is going back to Jerusalem not to rebuild a throne, but to rebuild a temple. And he knows that. And he never one time tries to stand up and say, make me king. He never does that. That's an incredible thing. Another leader was Joshua. Joshua, or Jeshua, or sometimes the Bible calls him, he was the religious leader. He was the high priest. And he was going to come back and, hey, if you're going to rebuild a temple, you need a high priest. And you're going to need other priests. And you're going to need Levites. And you can read all the way down through the chapter. It tells you about all those things. It tells you about the priests. It tells you about the Levites. It tells you about this group of people called the Nethanim. And the Nethanim are, are kind of calling back to just temple workers and helpers and singers. Uh, it tells you about how many camels and, and donkeys and all these things. It tells you about a couple, uh, a, a, a group group of a priestly family that while they were in Babylon, they stopped going by their Levitical name and they went by the name of Barzillai the Gileadite, who actually helped David when he was running from Absalom. Barzillai was a very rich person. That's that's basically like your last name being Kennedy or something. Uh, And so they thought, well, we're in Babylon, doesn't mean anything for us to be called a Levite, Let's call ourselves by Barzillai, that, that family name. And so when they come back and they say, hey, we want to come back and we want to be Levites again, they look back in the records and they can't find them. Sorry, you started going by a different name. We have no idea who you are, who you say you are. And they were polluted, the Bible says, and put from the priesthood. And they basically said, you can come back with us, but you can't do anything until another anoint, uh, appointed priest comes up and consults God. And through the Urim and Thummim and, and tells us what to do. Because, sorry, that was your decision. Uh, so just incredible detail that's given throughout it all in chapter 2. Now, in total, when you're talking about servants and maids and all these different things, 49,697 people are coming back. Now, at first you're thinking, wow. But they, out of all the Israelites... That's not a lot of people. That's not a lot of people. Only 50,000 people coming back after 70 years. But you have to think. You have to remember what this decision is. They're living in Babylon, one of the most luxurious places in the world. Underneath the empire of Cyrus, who took over everything from the Babylonian captivity, and it wasn't like there was all this war and bloodshed and hide the treasure. It was one night it switched hands. And Cyrus took over all of it. So yes, they're servants, and, but listen, don't, don't Jewish people just have a way of making things work? They're smart, they're savvy. Uh, I, I heard a story of a Jewish businessman in New York, and he, and he had this small little shop in between two huge supermarkets. So do you know what he named his shop? Entrance. They're smart, they they know how to make things work. And so they're in Babylon and they prosper. And so the decision is do we stay in Babylon where many of us have lived our entire lives we were born here I've never seen Jerusalem I've heard about it never heard of a never seen a Jewish temple and all of that so I leave here and I make this four to five month perilous journey with robbers all along the way and I'm going to get to a city that has been ransacked and burned and is just sitting in heaps for seven decades. We're going to need to rebuild all of it up, live in tents for goodness knows how long, and then the entire time we're doing that, what are we gonna eat? There's no crops that are there. We're gonna to have to live off the land for however long it takes. And then the entire time, we're rebuilding a temple. So, 50,000 people, not a lot, but what do we know about those 50,000 people? If they're making that decision to go back, they've made their choice. They know exactly what they're choosing. It's like you living in Cancun, Mexico, and then saying you have a chance to move to Gallup, New Mexico. No, no. right? Uh, so if you're going to go to from from one place, you know, to the Trump Tower to Red Roof, there better be a really good a, a really good reason for you to do that, right? And, and these people had the good reason. We're going back to rebuild the house of God. But only 15,000 people. When they arrive in Jerusalem, you see their true desire. They finally get back after about four and a half to five months, and they take up an offering. Just you know, a, a little building program of about $1.1 million in today's money to start rebuilding the temple. They had a desire to get this thing going. So they start in chapter 3. The first thing they start with is rebuilding an altar. They rebuild the altar. And they start doing sacrifices and offerings. And the Feast of Tabernacles is observed. Because it's the seventh month. And uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy tell them. The Law of Moses tells them. In the seventh month you do the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what they did. And uh, they start. Uh, Every day, they're following the law that's pertaining to the altar. They're doing continual burnt offerings. Any other feast that comes along, they observed them. Uh, Free will offerings were given the entire time. But look in chapter 3, verse 6 at the very end. But the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. What is that telling us? Well, that's telling us they they can't fully obey the law yet. There's still so many things according to the law that they can't do because they don't have the temple. Can't go into the Holy of Holies. Where are you going to burn the incense? Where are you going to sprinkle the blood? How are you going to do all that? We need a temple in order to do that. So they begin. They begin working on the temple. Now it takes them two years and two months from when they come back to the work that they start. Okay, It, it takes them. They don't start working on the temple until two years and two months after they've come back to Jerusalem. Now, you might be thinking, uh, laziness, a bunch of their, well, you have have to think they had the repairs that they had to do uh, just to find a place to live, to make the place habitable, to clear off the space, to build the temple on the sacred site that it was dedicated to the Lord before. All of the logistics to get the the workers, I'm sure they had to get windstorm permits and all of that. Um, But finally, in verse 10, the foundation of the temple is laid All the priests dressed up in their robes. The trumpets blow. The nethinims and the singers start to sing. Mixed around with this returning generation or some of the older generation who saw the first temple. And they start crying. Perhaps they're crying because they see this temple is nothing compared. Just just seeing the foundation, it's going to be nothing compared to what we had and what we lost. It's very possible. Haggai tells us that that was In their minds it's very possible they were just thinking look at how good God has been to allow us to come back and actually rebuild something after all we've done I think it was for both of the reasons but the Bible says that the celebration was so loud you couldn't tell who was crying you couldn't tell who was laughing and it was so loud people from all around could hear yes there were still people in Jerusalem that had stayed behind before and had kind of congregated in that area Um, The early Samaritans is who they were. And these people hear that the temple is being rebuilt. And immediately, now by the time that Jesus comes around, we hear of a Samaritan lady by the well saying, understanding her Jewish heritage. She understood that. These Samaritans here haven't seen any Jews for about 70 years. They've really come in from maybe the Assyrian captivity that had came to uh, be you know moved in and then just people who were left behind and just started intermarrying with and so a Samaritan was a half Jew half Gentile. And the Jews did not like the Samaritans and the Samaritans did not like the Jews and these early Samaritans were not good people. they were extremely idolatrous people. I mean, they were basically the remnants of everybody that was left behind of why God kicked them out in the first place. And in chapter four, verse one, you see immediately, the Bible makes it clear, they were the adversaries of Jerusalem and Judah. And these adversaries come up and they do everything they can to stop the building of this temple. And you know what their first tactic is? Join them. That's their first tactic. We want to Build along with you. Now they're the adversaries. Perhaps they want to get in there and skew it to their own favor. Perhaps they want to get in there so that they can ruin it from the inside out. Attacks from within are always more effective than attacks from without. We're seeing that in our country. It's not a terrorist organization. It's not some third world country that's coming in and ruining us. We're ruining ourselves from within because we have neglected God. And so these Samaritans come in and they say, we want to build with you. And Zerubbabel and Joshua look to them and say, you have no business with us. You have no business with us to build a house to our God. And they do not like that answer. So joining them doesn't work. So then they start discouraging them. And this continues all the way until Nehemiah. But look in uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah. They discouraged them. What are you doing? How, how do you think you're going to prosper in this? Seriously? You think that this is going to make, make you something special? You think that God is going to come back and listen to you again? That's what they did. That's what they had to deal with. Didn't Noah have to deal with that the entire time? And from chapter 4 of Ezra all the way through Jesus' ministry, we see this conflict between Jews, like pure Jews, and and the Samaritans. It continues the entire time. Uh, So then they try to bring discouragement and trouble, but their largest campaign was found in lobbying against them in the courts. And they start writing these letters from the king of Cyrus, who's the one who let them go, all the way down to the king of Darius, who's the one who actually um, allows them to finish the building. Um, Through that entire time, they're writing all these letters. The Bible gives us an exact copy of a letter that they write to a king named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes' dad was named Ahasuerus. Now, he sounds familiar. It's not the same Ahasuerus of Esther that I see. I do not believe it's the same one. Um, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, Xerxes, those were kind of dynastic names, just like we would call an Egyptian, any Egyptian king we would call him Pharaoh, you know, type of thing. Uh, so they write one of these letters to Artaxerxes, and they say basically, go back and look in the records of this city and you're going to find out that it is a bad city. I mean, that's the best That's the best that they can come up with in chapter 4, verse 12. Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are coming unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and bad city. And so Artaxerxes looks back, and he sees how powerful Judah and Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel were underneath David and underneath Solomon. And he basically says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right now, Jerusalem and Judah are paying tribute to me. Everyone used to pay tribute to them. Shut it down. Shut it down until I make another decree. And for 15 years, the work on the temple stops. For 15 years, it stops. And that's what it tells us about at the very end of chapter four. It takes the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah to come along and get them going again. And I'm so tempted to go into those books, but I'm not gonna do it. You're just gonna have to wait until we get to the prophets. Uh, So Haggai and Zechariah come and they kind of rouse the people back up into getting back to the work. And the Israelites resume the building of the temple and immediately they face opposition again. And this time they face opposition from a Persian governor named Tatnai. And Tatnai comes and he says, who gave you permission to build this temple. Now, I think at this point, these people are run down. I, I mean, they shouldn't have been so discouraged throughout this entire time, but they're, they're finally back. They're finally back and building again, and immediately they run into opposition. Who, what are your names? Who are you? Who told you you could do this? Basically, where's your permit, <laughs> is, is what Tatnai Tat is asking. Uh, and so Tatnai then writes a letter to now the current king of Persia, who is Darius. And uh, in Tatnai's letter in chapter 5, you're going to see a couple things. First of all, he says in verse 8, look, this, this work on the temple is really taking shape. They're working quickly, and they're working with a purpose. They are getting things done. And I went up to them, and I asked him, who are you? Who told you who, you could do this? And the, they looked back, and the Israelites looked back and say, and this is what they say. We are the children of God. We are, I'm sorry, we are the servants of God. We're rebuilding his house that was destroyed from Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, you look back in your records just a little bit, just a little bit sooner than the last time you looked in the records. And Cyrus, your own previous king, gave us the permission to do this. So Tatnai writes to Darius and he says, can you look and can you see that that's true? And so in chapter 6, Darius does that. And he looks and he finds the records from Cyrus in kind of this hideaway place. And it's incredible what Darius does. Darius writes back and he says, I've looked back in the records. And I see that Cyrus told them that they could build it. And he even sent them back with the vessels from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken to begin with. Here's the deal. Let the work of this house of God alone. I love that. It says, Tatnai, leave them alone. And not, no, no, don't leave them completely alone. Help them. Whatever they need, any riches, take it out of my storehouse, let them build it. And then he says this, any, anybody who changes this decree, I'm going to tear your house down. I'm going to use the beams from your house to build a gallows, and I'm going to hang you on the gallows. And then I'm going to turn your property into a sewage dump. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Says, let his house be pulled down. You'll be hanged on the beams thereof, and your house will be made a dunghill. I have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. Yes, sir. And 20 years, 20 years after they have come back to Jerusalem, they finally get the temple back up. And I mean, they sing and they, they follow the Passover again when it comes time. And the, I mean, the high priest is reinstated and the Levites are doing their job. I, it's absolutely incredible. They're back and they're able to worship again the way that they're supposed to worship. And that's how chapter 6 ends. Now we have a break in the story. Between Chapter 6 and Chapter 7, there's a 58-year gap. So I want you to think about this. We're we're done. I I wrote a kind of auxiliary message, just in case the teenagers went too long. And you did. So there's a 58-year gap between Chapter 6 and Chapter 7. So think about this. By the time that Ezra comes on the scene and he comes back to Jerusalem, this returning generation has already been back in Jerusalem. So if you take the 20 years it took to build the temple plus the 58 years between six and seven, they've already been back in Jerusalem longer than they were in captivity. That's incredible. I mean, think of all the prophets that cover that 70-year time. And it's silent in between six and seven. But the most important thing is they got the temple back up. Now here's how I'm gonna apply it, and I'm gonna apply it to you all. I always preached kind of the same message after we came back from youth conference. And I always called it this, I have decided, now what? So you've made decisions, now what? Okay, have you, do you see in Ezra how these people made a decision, a very clear decision? I'm leaving Babylon and I'm going back to Jerusalem and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's right, and I'm going to live for the Lord. There's a couple things that they ran into, isn't there? It wasn't easy. So I want to give those to you, and we're going to go. So you've decided. You've made a decision. Not only you teenagers, but whenever all of us make a decision. When you make a decision and you're wondering what's next, here's what's next. Abandon your plans. Church, we heard so many teenagers say, the Lord has called me. Or they said, If the Lord calls me, I'll go. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I think there are three major decisions that every Christian will make in their life. Their salvation, their marriage, and surrendering their life to God. And these teenagers are legitimately saying, if you are legitimately saying I will do whatever the Lord has for me to do, okay. You're choosing the narrow path. The narrow path doesn't have room for you and God's will and your will. You need to abandon your plans. And what we're going to see next week in Ezra is they were running into trouble because they left Babylon, but they were trying to live like they were still in Babylon. You can't do that. If you surrender to the Lord, you surrender all. He has no compromise terms. When you surrender to the Lord, you surrender everything. So if you have decided to follow the Lord, it's time to abandon your plans, but you need to trust him. His plans are a lot better than yours, trust me. And when you look at him and you pray and you say, but Lord, I really want to do this, and he says, no, 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 trust me, he has something much better planned for you. (sighs) Number two, if you've decided you need to count the cost, you need to understand, yes, Bershon, it takes people looking at you and saying that you're not normal. And it takes, you need to understand what it means to serve the Lord. It means that not everybody is going to be in your corner. But the Lord is. And you need to understand that you give up a lot of things in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. There's a lot in the world that it has to offer. There's big salaries, there's big paychecks, there's, there's status and all these different things that a lot of people clamor for. But building or living in a tent in Jerusalem in God's will is better than living in a palace in Babylon out of God's will. But you need to count that cost. You don't have a palace down here. Your mansion waits for you in eternity. Pay now or you'll pay later. I, I would say pay now. Okay. Uh, number three, if you've decided, don't worry about others who choose not to come back to Jerusalem with you. You may look around and say, well, only 50,000 of us? There's so many people that are staying back behind. Don't worry about the people who choose not to follow the Lord. Your decision is to follow the Lord. And though no one join you, you follow. But, Put your head on a swivel just for a little bit and widen your gaze. You have a bunch of people here who are with you and behind you. You keep on doing what's right. This uh, next one here. Be ready for opposition. You've decided to follow the Lord. Be ready for opposition. Samaritans are going to come. The world is going to come and they're going to do everything they can to stop you from fulfilling your decision. And we see that there is nowhere in the Bible where somebody has chosen to live for the Lord and did not meet with obstacles and adversaries. Sometimes this opposition comes from people who are extremely close to you. And people that you really wish would be behind you, but they're not. And you just need to know what the Lord wants you to do and you need to keep on going forward. Now obviously your parents are there for a reason and you don't look at your parents and say, well, I don't care what you say. I know what the Lord told me to do. I'm going to drop out of high school and I'm going to start selling things on Amazon. No, 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 no. But I guarantee you, your godly parents, if you legitimately look at them and say, I have decided and the Lord has led me to do this, they'll be behind you. When everybody in the situation has chosen to follow the Lord, you will never have to choose between family and the Lord. Some people, sometimes you do, because not everybody's on the same page. Uh, But be ready for opposition. You know what the Lord called James and John? Boanerges, the sons of thunder? The sons of thunder. Zebedee was the thunder. And can you understand why? Because they came back and decided to follow the Lord after probably one of their biggest catches that they've ever had on the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. I mean, Peter's net almost break. They had to come over. They had to mend their nets afterwards, didn't they? And Zebedee's probably thinking, oh, boys, we're in the money. This is great. I'm so proud of you. You're going to take over my business. And this is wonderful. And they said, no. No, we're following the Lord. And I think Zebedee had a little bit of a thunder tantrum. And Jesus said, I'm calling you Boanerges, the sons of thunder. You might have some opposition. You live for the Lord. And lastly, trust that God is with you. Look in Ezra chapter 5. When after the 20 years, Tatanai comes up and he says, who in the world do you think you are and what in the world do you think you're doing? You have no permits to do this. Look at what it says in verse 5. Then said we unto them after this manner: what are the names of the men that make this building? So they asked us who we were. We told them. Look in verse six. I'm sorry, look in verse five. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. No matter what obstacle may stand in front of you, it's no match to the Savior that stands behind you. And when you serve the Lord, he's with you. So you keep that decision and you keep on going forward. And I think that can apply to all of us, can't we? Amen, Let's stand together. Ladies, you go ahead and
1: play. I have.